Welcome back to Loaded and Rolling. I'm Thomas Watson, trucking expert here at Freight Waves. And got a lot of fun stuff to talk about today. It's going to be the Fed funds rate and the supply chain pricing power index. So everybody knows about the Federal Reserve and people talking about it, of course. But, you know, one of the big things is how it's impacting the supply chain. That also includes things such as freight volumes, uh, buying and pricing your vehicles, and uh, even trying to figure out, uh, you know, demand, uh, you know, consumer student loans. So we'll be bringing on in a little bit when he comes in, Michael Rudolph. He is a research analyst here over at Freight Waves, and he's going to be talking to us about it. He puts together the PPI as one of the writers as well. And so a lot of great stuff to dig into. Let's welcome him. Let's dive right in. Michael, pleasure to get to see you again. Normally, I talk to you on XM radio if I'm filling in. So it's nice to have some video, you know. Yeah, no, I'm glad you have this giant disembodied floating head in the studio with you. Uh, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. You know, we normally try to do a two box, but having an actual screen, we're kicking it old school, kind of like using a, instead of special effects, we're, we're making it practical. But, uh, you know, for folks who are unfamiliar with, uh, let's talk at first on uh, the Federal Reserve. It's one of the big things our research team also keeps an eye on. Uh, you know, give us a quick rundown. What's what's the current situation and, and sentiment? Because it seems like every time I turn on CNBC, they're just talking about it. It has uh, dramatically shifted over the past couple of days. So um, I've talked about this on uh, Freightwaves TV uh, yesterday with our resident chief economist, Anthony Smith. I was glad to have his, uh, his thoughts on the puzzle. But basically, at the start of December, the uh, Fed and you know Fed Chairman Jerome Powell uh, specifically kind of maintained their usual course that we would expect. They kind of shut up about what they're going to do in the future. They don't want to give markets too much information. And they said, look, it's too soon to talk about rate cuts right now. We're not sure if inflation is fully under control. We don't know that the labor market is kind of cooling in a controlled uh, way. And so that was to be expected. But less than two weeks later, uh, Jerome Powell, chairman of the Fed, said that after their most recent meeting, in which they held rate cuts, uh, or in which they held rates, uh, to no one's surprise, said that you know rate cuts had started to come into view, which was you know a very subdued way of saying, look, we're ready to start kind of heating the economy back up. Uh, and so markets celebrated, uh, you know, stocks were up, even the layman would see that. And so um, it was a pretty dramatic shift in messaging over that two-week period. And so it got me thinking, like, what changed within those two weeks? What did the Fed see in those two weeks that uh, that caused them to dramatically pivot in their kind of reserved hawkishness to kind of more open dovishness? That's what I'm kind of curious as well, because it does seem like a really it's a crazy thing. If you think about it, we're going to control the entire economic output with a singular rate, you know, the the inter the funds rate. Uh, but Looking at this data, is this a situation where, especially in logistics and supply chain, will this matter as much for us right now? Or is this something where the financiers are the ones placing their bets, kind of like picking which horse in the race before we feel the actual effects? Well, the financiers get in early and often. I mean, that's kind of the nature of their job. But I think it does speak to the, what kind of you know first half of next year we can expect for the trucking industry as well as the economy uh, at large, right? Uh, you know, interest rates. Just to take one example, so closely uh, tied to the housing market, right? Because mortgage rates, uh, you know, set the tone for that. And we've been in a pretty brutal housing market, wherein mortgage rates they've started to come down over the past couple of uh, months, but you know they're still very high, um, more than double where they were two years ago. So the housing market is difficult because mortgage rates are still high, housing prices haven't really come down, and there's still low inventory, right? 
but nobody really wants to build new houses uh, when you know interest rates are so high. Uh, it, it discourages investment like that. So the housing market, in addition to the kind of raw benefits that it provides, you know, the flatbed trucking industry. Um, it has a, a huge trickle-down effect for the broader economy, retail spending on furniture and other big-ticket items you'd fill up a house with. Um, and that's just a lot of goods that, wouldn't, that aren't really moving over the roads, but could soon if the housing market uh, shifts. And that's just to take one example. Yeah, let's pull up the housing starts. We should have a chart that does total housing starts. I think it's H-O-U-S. If you look at it, it's sonar. And this is pretty interesting because, uh, you know, when we're looking at the impact of Federal Reserve rates as well as housing starts, is this something where we would assume that lowering the rate will cause more starts or are higher rates, are builders just going to say, whatever, I'm going to, uh, if I'm going to build, I'm going to build. Is that a very large impact? Because it just looks to me like a continuous trend. And then it looks like we have a drop off in 2022, but it's still kind of crazy compared to, you know, early 2005 before uh, the financial crisis. Right. I mean, so all things being equal, higher rates means, uh, you know, lower investment in, you know, permanent kind of structures, including, you know, residential houses. So that drop off that we do see in 2022, of course, kind of coincided with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, spiking energy prices and the kind of first uh, interventions of the Fed this cycle. So you do see a pretty dramatic pivot there. I know it looks a little up and down kind of in the in the months following, but um, if you look at the larger trend, like housing starts are a little bit behind where they otherwise would be if you kind of follow from, you know, the bottom of 2009 all the way up to, you know, where it was prior to the pandemic. And in November, uh, we actually did see a pretty big surprise to the upside in housing starts. Everybody was kind of saying that, you know, home builder sentiment is pretty subdued. They're not feeling too um, optimistic about how they're going to fare in the next few months. Housing starts in November actually skyrocketed almost 15% on a monthly basis. And that's their third consecutive monthly gain. So I guess less important than the number of houses being built is the momentum of the market uh, in general. And of course, in, when we look at December and January, even though those are winter months that are not really um, hospitable to construction, uh, let's say, especially if you live in the godless north, um, we're, we still might see that momentum continue into those weaker months, um, especially since, you know, the Fed has kind of delivered us this good news that, hey, the end is on the horizon. Feel free to invest, you know, you know, uh, to be announced. And Fed really likes to be kind of the keeper of inflation. Two to three percent is what I typically hear about. And uh, one of the things looking at a CPI urban all items, uh, it does appear that it's continuing to go up. And when we're looking at inflation, it feels like there's two points of this conversation. One side of the table is telling me, well, the year over year, the amount of inflation is in fact going down. So we're winning. But then another side said, well, if you look at it from the past three years, things are still much higher. Uh, is that something, especially when we eventually talk about how it translates into freight volumes, uh, is this now the thing where we're assuming that we've done our job, inflation's back to normal, and that's why maybe there's a cut, or is there, is there more to this story, especially in this CPI data? I'm glad you brought that up because there's a really good segue. Um, it seems like, I think initially early in the cycle, the Fed kind of had a, a very uh, lofty goal, but you know, an attainable goal nonetheless, of bringing inflation not only down like on a year-over-year -year basis, but kind of bringing prices down to where they were prior to the, the slew of pandemic disruptions. 
And so this is really the key part of the puzzle that kind of triggered it, because in between those two weeks where the Fed shifted its stance, inflation data came out. And uh, looking at the consumer, right, inflation rose a little bit more than expected, kind of modestly. When you look at core goods, uh, that rose a little bit even, you know, it proved a little bit more stickier than that. But really, the surprise was super core inflation, which is uh, core services, right, excluding food and energy. Uh, and also shelter and housing, right? And super core inflation is important because the Fed has explicitly stated, they, they state very few things explicitly, but they explicitly stated this cycle that super core inflation was the thing that they were watching, right? This is how they're going to know if their battle against inflation is, is done or not, right? And in November, super core inflation was up, uh, I think, half a percentage point month over month, and it was above that 4% year over year uh, margin that's kind of too critical to ignore. So, you know, of course, energy costs are coming down, oil is getting cheaper, gas and diesel are getting cheaper too. But if you look kind of more broadly against, like, uh, or except for those kind of volatile priced goods, right, inflation is still a looming threat, right? It's not clobbering us over the head. I think the worst is behind us, but it's still not quite over. And the Fed might, you know, have reserved their their dovishness for a later day. Now, I do wonder about that. The super core excludes food, housing, energy, fuel, which it feels like those were the biggest things that saw the jump. Uh, is there any risk that, uh, especially if we decide to do rate cuts in 24, uh, with the food situation? Because I know a lot of consumers uh, will bring up total revolving credit outstanding. Really cool thing. Uh, one of our charts here talking about how consumers are spending more. They're putting more on their credit. Uh, and uh, it's coming. It's becoming a concern. Is there a concern that uh, it's premature? You start lowering the rates, but maybe like food inflation and housing inflation still continues to go up due to this demand. Are you between a rock and a hard place? Yeah, I mean that's you know it's you know sometimes I don't envy the Fed. They have a difficult uh, tightrope to walk, right? Um, to figure out like when is too much and when's not enough. Um, as far as food inflation goes, I'm certainly no expert uh, with that, and I know that. A lot of the staples, you know, kind of grains, uh, for example, are very dependent on the geopolitical situation with which I'm not well acquainted. Uh, also, in kind of government, uh, like, you know, federal and state regulations uh, and the, the buyer programs that they have. So I'm certainly no expert. I don't know what's on the horizon for food. Hopefully you will have a normal produce season, uh, no extreme weather to preclude that uh, in the spring. Uh, energy inflation, I feel pretty confident that the worst is behind us in terms of oil. Uh, Saudi Arabia is getting desperate. And it looks like the OPEC cartel is maybe not tearing apart at the seams, but there's definitely a few hairline fractures, if nothing else, uh, there. And the U.S. is kind of stepping up to fill that void to where we kind of control the, uh, we have a greater say in the tr uh, control of global supply of oil, but also just, you know, naming the price as well. And so it's going to be an election year next year. I think that's very important to all parties involved that, uh, you know, food is not out of reach for the average American because that will bear uh, negatively on the incumbent. Um, and so I think there's a vested interest to keep these kind of food, energy, volatile pricing as down as much as possible. Housing is kind of up in the air, right? You would expect as mortgage rates climb, housing prices would lower. But because there's just not enough inventory, people don't want to move out of their houses and maybe there aren't enough houses for everybody that wants one, how, uh, prices are elevated. And I don't really know a quick fix to that, except for the kind of slow march of construction of new homes. That's what it reminds me of. It. You can sell your home for really good profit, but good luck trying to buy the next home. So you're going to hammered. Let's pull up another chart here. Effective federal funds rate. I want to segue into uh, ZERP. 
zero interest rate policy. It was that way since 2009, started climbing up in 2016. Uh, Prior to the pandemic, we're at what, around two and a half percent looking at this chart, went back down because of the pandemic. Now we're at 5.33 percent as of the last data set. Uh, Does this look like a situation where, uh, you know, are we going to see it go back? If you could predict, has there been any comments by the Fed? What would a new comfortable affected federal funds rate be? Because it does appear that there were a lot of unforeseen consequences keeping it around zero. Uh, Or where would you prefer it to be if you're kind of the Fed chair? I mean, the feds have stated, I think, that they uh, are raising the neutral rate up to 3%. So eventually, when the cuts start to appear over the next year or two, right, 3% might be the neutral uh, target rate for them. Hopefully, it'll be a little bit lower than that, because 3% is still pretty high, but it depends on how sensitive the economy is uh, to heating up uh, too quickly. Of course, the Fed has always stated that their goal is to bring the target rates down before, uh, you know, a, a major catastrophe happens, a recession, right? And they don't have the greatest track record for doing that. So hopefully, they can bring rates down in a kind of controlled way. We get the soft landing of the economy. Nobody, you know, is out of work or, you know, there's no huge, uh, you know, uh, housing crisis again. But, you know, they, again, like I said, they don't have the best track record. So we're all praying for a soft landing. And I think we'll all kind of applaud if they pull that off. But uh, for now, I think 3% is their target neutral rate. And that's going to take, you know, at least two years, maybe three years to get back down to a, a kind of stable level. And let's talk about things that are stable. How about tender volumes? We're going to segue into more trucking related on how uh, the market is performing. One of the big things, uh, outbound tender volumes and rejection rates, uh, we're starting to see creep up 4.29%. So below five, I always think five to seven is kind of our our sweet spot where uh, you've got a little bit of an equilibrium. Uh, but at the same time, volumes have fallen, which they typically do leading uh, up to New Year's. What are some of your thoughts on this? Because we saw the consumer spending, we saw the total credit outstanding. It looks like there's still some healthy amount of freight volumes, but uh, are there anything typically that we should be keeping an eye out moving into Q1? Because every time I pull up the seasonal view, tender volumes typically fall beginning in January, and we don't really see much going on until March. So we had a pretty active Q1 in 2022 because shippers were trying to get ahead of the inventory uh, crisis. Back then, the inventory crisis was not having enough inventory. Now it's you know trying to burn off with what uh, inventory you have remaining. Um, so that was an unusually kind of active uh, first quarter back in 2022. Shippers are very comfortable with their kind of just-in-time inventory strategies nowadays, and I think that you know in terms of seasonality, Q1 will be very seasonal in the fact that it will be weak, but looking at the first half of December, even now, right, I'm still very impressed with how robust the trends in tender volumes have been. Um, November was kind of a a weird month because, um, you know, of course, it's uh, bookended with Thanksgiving. And so you have like a lot of tightening right before then, uh, as contract freight gets rejected. October was relatively weak, I think, because a lot of its freight got pulled kind of every which way. So some of it was front-loaded to September. September was pretty strong. And then some of it was delayed back to November, right? Um, but December, just in general, was very strong, especially if you look at like previous boom years, uh, 2021, right? 2020, right? Um, usually, you start to see that fall more dramatically and sooner than we did this year. Of course, it's falling. It's going to fall. Like That's no surprise, right? But in the weeks leading up to it, it was relatively stable. And um, that's worth celebrating. I mean, it's a sign of a recovery. It may not feel like it because we're still oversupplied with capacity, but it is a, a recovery in demand nonetheless.
I think that's impressive because we pull up our final chart here, the NTI seven-day average uh, paired up with the initial contracted rate. One thing that has continued to stick out for most of 2023 has been, uh, aside from when we saw the declines in March and April, the market seems to have stabilized. And uh, typically we see an upswing in the all-in uh, rate moving into the holidays. We're projected to see it. Our uh, forecasting model obviously is weighed by seasonal things as well as other factors. But when you're looking at this, uh, you know, which one should we be looking at first? Because we see a lot of elevated contracted volumes, but it looks like there's still too much capacity because uh, typically spot rates are supposed to continue to rise at this phase. Yeah. So taking a look at the white line, which is just kind of all in fuel inclusive spot rates, right? Um, that was kind of the biggest shock uh, in a negative sense for me because right, like by now you would expect spot rates to start rising and not continue to to fall. So you know, looking at the forecasting model, that's exactly what I would predict is that spot rates should shoot up any day now and then remain kind of elevated going into the first week or two of January. Um, that's what always happens in the best of times and the worst of times, right? One thing I do like about spot rates though is how uh, again this is a national average, right? Um, how long they held on to their kind of Thanksgiving boost, right? They, they held it for about a week into December, right? So there wasn't a huge gain, there wasn't a huge difference, but they were able to capitalize on that momentum and carry it forward. So hopefully, when we do see the inevitable, you know, kind of Christmas, New Year's boost, right, carriers will be able to kind of carry that spot rate momentum further into January kind of deeper. Um, of course, since it's an all-in kind of spot rate, uh, it's fuel-inclusive and fuel prices have been dropping. So that also does weigh heavily on the NTI. Uh, and again, there's probably no reversal of that trend anytime soon. I think diesel will continue to either stay as cheap as it is or get cheaper. Um, we've looked at kind of supply uh, imbalances in uh, you know kind of region-specific, like in New England. There was a diesel shortage, uh, was it last year or two years ago? Um, that was pretty severe. I, th I think we're going to avoid that just looking at the inventory uh, and the usage this year. So that's good. Um, again, it will weigh in on those all-in spot rates. But yeah, I'm a little surprised that they haven't taken off for their kind of Christmas boost just yet. Uh, looking at the green line, we're looking at contract rates, right? Those are not uh, fuel inclusive. They're just kind of line haul contract rates. Of course, you see that dip um, in late October. That's when shippers kind of began their yearly bid cycle, and that will last for a few months. Um, they didn't see significant gains around Thanksgiving, and they didn't hold on to what gains they had uh, for very long. So they're kind of sidewalking uh, into December. Uh, of course, we'll probably see a holiday boost for them as well. But uh, I think shippers are going to have one last hurrah in kind of flexing the pricing power this cycle. And then after that, it should return to a more neutral, balanced state between shippers and carriers when you name rates. Well, that segues into the FreightWave Supply Chain Pricing Power Index uh, between shipper and carrier. We are currently at a 35. Forgot to get the image for it. The needle is basically like a uh, accelerator, but the uh, part is in the shipper. Explain a little bit about what goes into the pricing power index and what do the readings really mean? What is a what do between the numbers uh, uh, in terms of what the market looks like? So I'm going to you know, kind of reveal how the sausage is made a little bit. The PPI is um, mostly arbitrary. It's something that you know I decide or my colleagues, Tony Mulvey and Joe, uh, decide on a weekly basis. And it really just, you know, it's an index that goes from zero to 100, right? It tracks pricing power. That's why it's named the pricing power index. And, you know, this pricing power is split between shippers and carriers, right? So if it were 50, 
that would be perfectly balanced between shippers and carriers, which you never see perfect balance because we don't live in a perfect world. Um, if it's above 50, that means that carriers are favored when naming rates. Uh, we saw that for you know throughout 2020, 2021. Uh, but now it's at 35, which means that shippers have the majority of the pricing power. And that's no surprise. Uh, it actually came off lows of 25, I think, a few months ago, back in June or May. Um, so, you know, carriers have regained some amount of pricing power. It's not really theirs to have just yet. And I think this late, this last contract cycle will be the kind of definitive end to uh, shippers kind of naming their contracted rates um, this, this go around. And, and then after that, it should trend closer to 50. Of course, that all depends on freight demand and, and how often, uh, you know, tenders get rejected. And then, you know, spot rates, uh, importantly, how they fare. And if we want to typically see a 50 on this index, is that something, uh, what would be, uh, uh, would it be specifically more towards rejection rates uh, being a big uh, leading indicator? Or would it also mean that spot rates are slowly ticking upwards to kind of show who's finally got the wheel uh, metaphorically? To see a perfect 50, like right smack dab in the middle, it would have to be, you know, that the market is basically just informed by the whims of seasonality, right? There's really no kind of uh, influence that either shippers or carriers are exerting on prices. It's just kind of the way it goes. So rejection rates would stable stabilize, I think, around, you know, 6 to 8%. Um, and, you know, spot rates would kind of settle in their level, wherever that might be with no dramatic changes on a weekly basis. And then, you know, freight demand is just seasonal as it is, right? Especially mode-specific um, kind of seasonal demand, right? Produce season favors the reefers, right? So construction season favors the flatbeds. So if we saw a market like that, that would be a 50. Um, I think we're still some ways off from it. I don't want to lie. I think our three-month outlook has us at 35, which may be a little too optimistic uh, for now. But once we get into produce season, I'm fairly confident that the, the dynamics of the market will, you know, shift into something favorable to both parties. And I think that kind of dovetails into a final thought here. Uh, I was going to throw some Gerard at you, but I'm actually really curious when we talk about a freight recession versus a macro recession, uh, could we be in a situation tying in the funds rate, tying in the PPI, that the federal fund, you know, the Fed is doing a soft landing. Uh, we are, the economy is in contraction, but then the freight market, bounces back. Is that an actual scenario where, you know, the freight market does not always uh, indicate what's going on at the overall macro market? So I don't know if there has been a scenario like off the top of my head where the uh, broader economy has been in a recession, but the freight market hasn't. I mean, I'm sure there is one, uh, probably the early stages of 2020, uh, which was a technical recession. Um, you know, the toilet paper buying and all that, right? That was good to freight markets, all that confusion, right? That may count. But, you know, there are often, there are numerous cases where the freight uh, market is in a recession, but the broader economy sidesteps it. One of the worries that we have is kind of what consumers will do. And that's just, you know, unpredictable. I've, I thought I had a handle on that for the past two years running, uh, how the consumer would react to tightening lines of credit or maybe satiation with all the goods they bought during the pandemic heydays, right? Did they have enough uh, flat screen TVs or, you know, refrigerators or furniture? Um, and they were very resilient in their spending, even though they didn't seem to have a lot of runway to do so. They were kind of running out of savings, running out of credit, and still they spent. So, you know, 
it's times like these where the Fed maybe thinks that they have to protect consumers from themselves by deterring purchases. And uh, if they don't feel like they have that charge anymore, there is a very real possibility that consumers will continue their kind of, I would say, reckless uh, spending habits. And that would be very good for the freight uh, economy especially if the housing market does kind of go into a healthy rebalance, right? Where people who want to buy homes are able to afford them and move into them and then kit them out with, you know, big trips to Ikea or Pottery Barn or what have you, right? That would be great for the freight economy. Final thoughts, about a minute left. 60% of student loan borrowers, according to CNBC, made payments when the bills restarted. So in October, when it expired, 22 million people had their bills due, but only 60% of them made payments by mid-November, according to Department of Education data. Is that something to keep on? Can we continue spending? How long can I get away with not paying my loans? Is that something worth watching? One minute. They have a 12-month kind of grace period where they don't get any negative effects for not paying their student loans. So this will be a topic to keep an eye on, but really to revisit next September and October to see how many student loan uh, repayments are kind of uh, in line with their payment schedule. So we will keep an eye on that. I don't think it has near-term implications just yet. But again, the less room they have to maneuver, the worse it is for the freight economy. The ticking time bomb has begun. We're definitely going to revisit it. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show. Looking forward to as well, seeing what y'all are working on. If people want to get in touch, check out research, get in contact, best way to find out. Yep. Uh, Just uh, on the FreightWaves website, main page, every Friday, or hopefully every Friday, we have the PPI. Uh, Come by, comment, you know, just uh, leave your thoughts, and I'll try and answer as best as I can. Perfect. Appreciate your time, sir. Speaking of time, we have officially run out. One of these days, I'll get an hour-long show, but until then, it's only 26 minutes. Uh, That's going to be a wrap for this one. Check out the newsletter, freightwaves.com slash loaded and rolling. Comes out 2 p.m. every Thursday. And if you want to join us again, we're on demand, YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and we will be back, not next week, but maybe in January. Who knows? Christmas is coming up. Join us again Tuesday, 1 p.m. Do it live.